Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the council. I'm your host, Charlie Pacella. Boy, this has been a crazy few weeks that we have been going through uh, around the world and uh, uh, around the country, our nation and our veterans and everybody who's experiencing a lot of challenges going on because of what's been going on in Afghanistan and elsewhere. And uh, the COVID pandemic, it just seems like we're so overwhelmed with so many different things. And so we appreciate that you take the time out of your very busy day to be able to come and join us here on the council. Uh, we are dedicated to your healing and, and understanding and giving you information and providing an outlet for people to be able to know what other people are doing to help the communities, especially now during these very difficult and challenging times. Just a quick shout-out to our station here. We are KUHS-TV Radio Denver. We are broadcasting live here in Denver, Colorado, broadcasting here and all across the nation and all around the world. Uh, we're being tuned in by people from so many different countries, over at least 200 more. I mean, it's amazing how many people tune in from all around the globe on, on almost every continent. And it's just an honor and a privilege to be your host and uh, that you trust us to bring you the best quality shows that we can give you each and every time that we are on. Uh, without you, the show doesn't exist. And so we are just really grateful that wherever you are, that you are tuning in to KUHS TV, radio, the stream. Uh, we have so many great programs here in VDJs and wide variety of talk shows, including Taste Life Radio with Nikki Burnett and others that are just having some, you know, shows that are inspiring and giving you uh, information that can make your life better. The Dr. Eliza Show, so many, the 360 Mindset with Dr. Lowell, uh, so many different shows here that are helping you to become the better people that we want to become. And so our mission here is to bring quality programming that reflects the diversity of our staff and to have honest grounded, authentic conversations about the many things that are confronting our society, and we want to do it together. Here at KUHS, we stand as a beacon of hope in a world filled with a lot of fear, distrust, and separation, and we're striving to bring our city and our nation and our world together by bringing a platform that celebrates our commonalities, our goodness and our humanity. So thank you for tuning in to the council here on KUHS Radio TV Denver. Uh, folks, we are in quite a uh, challenging time. And, um, you know, we've been speaking a lot lately about veteran issues and the things that uh, are confronting our veteran community and the uh, needing to recognize that we have to heal and reconnect in community. And this is a way for us to be able to do that to be able to connect with others who are, are doing great work out there to help our veterans, especially during this debacle of, uh, of a withdrawal from Afghanistan. And, and no matter where you fit on the political spectrum, you recognize it was a debacle and it was botched. And according to the National Veterans Association, there's been an increase in calls to the suicide prevention hotline. Uh, and a lot of veterans are asking themselves who were in those in those deployments, those numerous deployments, you know, what was it all for? You know, why did I have to go there? Why did I have to lose uh, my, my brother or my sister over there? And, what, you know, what was the point of all that? And uh, we have to be able to rally around them and to give them the resources that are available that can help to so that they don't collapse into the wound, that they don't collapse into those um, deep, moral questions, those deep moral injuries, the, the feelings of betrayal, the feelings of abandonment, the feelings of having us abandoned others, and uh, which are very raw and palpable right now. And so, you know, our, our point here in our mission is to be able to give you those uh, resources that are out there so that we can help our veterans to, to work through these challenging times. And, and so, you know, there's a lot of out there, and today we're honored to have another amazing guest, another incredible guest whose organization is really helping to save veteran lives. And that's what it's about, is saving veteran lives and making sure that they recognize that their service uh, was worth it, that they, it meant something, and it, it gave something to people. We need to do, and so it's my esteemed honor to introduce my next guest for the council, 
and Gordon Sumner. He is the president and CEO of Veterans Moving Forward, a nonprofit providing service and emotional support dogs to veterans at no cost. He's also the founder of Gordon Sumner Consulting, a service-disabled veteran-owned small business and American Indian small business. He's a member of the Santee Tribe. Dr. Sumner has supported various small veteran-owned and service-disabled veteran-owned small businesses, 5013C charitable organizations, disadvantaged and minority groups to include American Indian and veteran organizations. Dr. Sumner previously served as the National Director for the National Committee for Employer Support of the Guard and Reserve, as a presidential appointee and member of the Senior Executive Service, serving at the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense level, he provided executive leadership to the largest volunteer organization within the Department of Defense comprised of over 5,000 uniformed military, government civilians, defense contractors, and volunteers. Dr. Sumner is a decorated combat veteran, is the recipient of the Legion of Merit, Bronze Star Medal, Purple Heart, Meritorious Service Medal, Air Medal, and Joint Services Commendation Medal. He also holds the Army Master Aviator Badge, the Master Parachute Badge, the Ranger Tab. Various other U.S. and foreign awards and decorations, such as the Most Excellent Order of the British Empire, awarded by Her Royal Highness Queen Elizabeth II, the British Army Air Corps Badge, British Parachute Badge, Ecuadorian Parachutist Badge, the Order of St. Michael, and the National Guard Bureau Minuteman Award, and numerous other U.S. and foreign military awards and decorations. Their website is www.vetsforward.org. That's V-E-T-S-F-W-D.org. That's V-E-T-S. FWD.org. Gordon, welcome to the council. Oh, thank you so much, Charlie. It's an honor to be with you. Oh. Very, very happy. Well, sir, it's an honor to be with you. My goodness. I uh, just reading a little bit about your background and the things that you have done and how you have served uh, is, oh, my goodness. I am uh, humbled and honored to have you here, sir. Could you? Could you share with our audience just a little bit more about your background and when and where you served? Well, I tell you, I, I tell people, Charlie, that I'm the poster child for God works in strange and mysterious ways. Um, if you look at my military career and the opportunities that I've had that a lot of people just don't have with their distinguished careers, you get one or maybe two really nice assignments like this. I tend to have one right after the other after the other for well over a 20 to almost 30-year career in the military. And... I tell people it was just a lot of luck. Uh, I came in the Army uh, in the early 70s. I was actually a piano major in college. That was my intent. Ended up with a low draft number, and I thought, well, I'll go ahead and get into the reserves and do the simultaneous member program. I was offered a commission, so I went ahead and took it, and I was actually making more money as a second lieutenant who was still qualified for food stamps than I could have as a teacher in Alabama. <laughs> so... Um, I thought, well, I really wanted to try the Army. I was fortunate enough to get active duty. I was commissioned uh, infantry and uh, served at Fort Stewart and Light Infantry and then the 1st Battalion Rangers um, back again in the 70s. And then Vietnam was over, and I said, you know, I got married, thought I'd get out. And that's when the, my assignments officer, and this is one of the first times that I said God works in strange and mysterious ways, mm -hmm. he got promoted and was in his office that weekend, that Saturday morning, cleaning his desk when he found my file where I was resigning my commission, and I was already been accepted to go to graduate school, and he called me in my quarters at 6.30 that morning, yelling in the phone, what the hell are you doing, Lieutenant? Uh -huh. And I like <laughs> pulled the phone out, and I said, hello, and he goes, what the hell are you doing? And I said, Captain Duckworth? And he goes, Major Duckworth to you, and I'm like, okay, whatever. Uh -huh. Why are you calling me at 6.30 on a Saturday morning? He says, I'm in here saving your career. And he said, you wanted to go to flight school? And I said, well, yeah, but we kicked all the pilots out. And then he said, yeah, we kind of screwed that up, kicked out too many. So if you want to go to flight school, your class starts in 30 days. 
And I said, yeah, I'll, I'll fly helicopter versus right. walking any day. Yeah. And uh, he said, well, don't screw things up. You need to go get your physical, do all your fab tests and stuff like that. Because he actually cut orders. He didn't cut a request for orders. He actually cut orders assigned to me to Fort Rucker literally 30 days from that phone call. Um, and so, fortunately, uh, the guy who had been my infantry executive officer was a guy that I had watched when I was growing up, a class, high school classmate of my sister, quarterback of the high school football team, now a major in the Army, who was also an Army aviator. And he set up my test, my physical, and everything for me the following Monday morning. So I was able to do everything, passed everything, and uh, got to flight school, uh, became an Army aviator, and as they say, the rest is history. But, and, then, and there you go. I mean, you, you can't <laughs> script that. No, you can't script something like that. I mean, that's something that you're, you're, when your path opens up to you like that, people are, it's like they, you have these invisible helpers that guide you, you know, along the way, the path that you're supposed to be on. And obviously that was exactly what was being guided and being directed for you. And that which led you to actually work in uh, both the Bush and, uh, and Obama administrations. I understand that you worked for them both. Could you just share a, a little bit about the work you did and also how it shaped you as a leader and an individual. Well, sure. Um, again, very fortunate. I got a phone call. I was in the Pentagon, and I got a phone call from the Bush transition team, a gentleman named Craig Durham, Colonel Air Force, retired, was on the team. So I went to see him, and as I handed him my resume, he looked at it, looked back at me, looked back down at it, looked back at me, and by the third time I went, oh, Sorry, you're not interested in me. You're interested in talking to my military dad, uh, who was a retired three-star. And I said, but that's okay. I get it all the time. I'm out. And he went, well, wait a minute. Let me, you know, he said, no, you got a nice resume. Obviously, you're interested. Let me see what I can do. And as it turned out, he uh, introduced me to a gentleman named Jim O'Byrne, who was the, I call it the assignments officer for the Pentagon for the White House transition team. So I went to meet Mr. O'Byrne, uh, senior level SES. Come to find out, he too had been in the 82nd Airborne Division. So my 30-minute interview, I sat down for the first 30 seconds and told him I was very pleased to meet him. I'm there to answer any questions he's got. He launched into his personal history of being in the 82nd Airborne Division for 29 minutes. And then as he wrapped that up, he said, anybody that was in the division has got a job with, with us. Great to meet you. I'll talk to you later. <laughs> That's great. That was my interview. Wow. I said nothing. Like, that was it. <clears throat> so uh, That's walked a great out interview. <laughs> yeah, it was the easiest interview I've ever had. So I walked out, and um, he called me and said, hey, look, here's some jobs we're looking at. Um, and what I need you to do is rank order one through five. And the executive director for ESGR was one of the jobs. He had never mentioned that one. So that was a surprise when I saw it. Mm. And I started asking, he said, look, I don't have time to talk. One through five, I got to go, leave it on my desk. So I took a piece of paper, numbered it one through five, and I put ESGR in all five slots. Mm -hmm. So I figured if he can't get that message, then we've got a problem. <laughs> so so that, was on a, that was on a Tuesday. Um, got the call Thursday that I'd been uh, selected. And Friday I was on a plane headed to London for an international conference. And that's where I met my uh, my my aide, who later became my chief of staff, mm -hmm. uh, retired uh, Coast Guard Captain Ron White, who still is one of my best friends out there. And again, for ESGR, they say the rest is history. But I had a very opportunity, very unique opportunity to work as you as you mentioned earlier, the largest volunteer base in the Department of uh, Defense. Yeah. So I had, as ESGR, I had staff and volunteers in every state and territory. So I had 54 commu uh, uh, groups of people, committees, mm -hmm. all led by a state-appointed, confirmed by the Secretary of Defense-appointed level person. Usually a lot of them are flag or general officers that had their committees, and they, we mirrored that after what I had here in D.C. Mm -hmm. as far as the training committee and resource committee and all that kind of stuff. Our job was to work with all seven SEALs, all seven of the reserve components, and all employers who hired guardsmen and reservists to make sure everybody understood the rules 
the USERRA law, the Uniform Services uh, Act that we had. And so that was, it was a full-time job, a lot mm-hmm. of traveling. Mm-hmm. Uh, I averaged about 270 days a year um, in a suitcase. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I'd, yeah. I'd take a picture, send it back home to my wife and daughter and say, I'm still here, this is what I still look like. <laughs> uh, they didn't care as long as the paycheck was still coming direct right. deposit into the bank. So right. we were good. Yeah, we're happy. <laughs> yeah, we're happy. Yeah. But, uh, but I'm telling you, um, it was a fantastic job and mm-hmm. a fantastic team at the headquarters, great support. And um, when President Bush was rolling out, uh, Secretary Gates, who was the Secretary of Defense at the time, mm-hmm. realized that this was the first time that our country was having a transition of president. And we were at war. First time in 40 years that had ever happened mm-hmm. because President Bush had rolled out. So we were going to have a new president regardless of party. So what Secretary Gates did was he went to both parties and said, look, I will stay on as the secretary through this transition. I'll keep some people in the Pentagon so we can have decision making and not be stymied by all the political appointees leaving. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I'll ask some of them to stay on and we can have this continuity of not power, but continuity of decisions and continuity of action because we had troops in the field at war. So the secretary asked through channels if I would stay. I said, absolutely. I was loving life, loving my job. I didn't realize how much fun I was having until my daughter came home from college. And we were sitting there watching TV. And suddenly out of the blue, she leans over. She says, hey, Papa, you know what? I said, no, what, sweetie? She said, this is the happiest I've seen you since you retired from the Army. Oh, wow. (laughs) And I'd been out for a while. I mean, it was that much fun. That's how much I enjoyed the team I was with. So uh, I stayed on through the transition, and then, um, and then I bowed out and, and then let, let the next team come on board. But I, I, I'll admit, uh, I had tears in my eyes when I walked out the door that Friday, my last day. I did not want to leave. I would have stayed there if I could have, uh, but it was, it was time. Oh, my gosh. Time. That's really inspiring, Gordon. I mean, I, just to hear you talk about what your experience was and how engaged you were and, and how much you loved the work that you did. Uh, I can feel it and I can sense it. My goodness, you must have had uh, a whole company of people that you worked for just excited to work for you because uh, you were so excited about the work that you guys were doing. And you also, huh. you also were a commander and have been a commander um, and served as the commander for the Greater Washington, D.C. chapter 353, the Military Order of the Purple Heart. Yes. And as a recipient of the Purple Heart, I'm sure you have met some very noble people along the way. Could you share just what you were doing there as your work and just maybe an inspiring story from your time there uh, as the the commander? Well, I've been a member of uh, Military Order of Purple Heart for many years. Um, as we all say in the organization, and it is a congressionally chartered uh, veteran service organization, that of all the military decorations that our country bestows upon our military, this is the one medal that none of us wanted to receive. My daughter actually calls it the Papa Too Slow to Duck medal. So I, um, <laughs> so, so you know, you end up with it, but when you do have it. Uh, There's a lot of pride that comes along with it and a lot of history that comes along. A lot of people don't realize that the Purple Heart is the oldest military decoration in the United States. Mm -hmm. It's a derivative of General Washington's badge of military merit Mm -hmm. that he came up with during the Revolutionary War that was awarded to enlisted soldiers. That was the first time an enlisted soldier or non-commissioned officer had ever been awarded any kind of military decoration in the world. Wow. They were, they were never awarded. Only officers received medals, decorations during war. No enlisted. Wow. So General Washington changed that. And the concept was a cloth badge in the shape of a heart, colored purple with the word merit on it. And it was worn over the left breast pocket of the uniform. And it allowed that soldier to not have to worry about the challenge and password that when he was seen approaching the sentry, he was automatically let into the camp he was automatically allowed to leave the camp on his own recognizance. So um, that's where it came from. It fell out um, after the Revolutionary War. Then in 1932, General MacArthur, when he was chief of staff in the Army, Mm -hmm. 
uh, came up with the idea of the Purple Heart Medal. He had it designed, got it approved. The president signed the orders. So on General Washington's two, what would have been his 200th birthday, mm-hmm. February the 22nd in 1932, the Purple Heart Medal, as you see it today, was uh, was done. Now what MacArthur did is he backdated it to World War One, and he had it as a prerequisite that you had to be either wounded or killed in combat. So guess who was wounded during World War One, and guess who technically had metal, you know, Purple Heart Medal number one. General MacArthur. General MacArthur. <laughs> it's a clever, yeah. Right. Yeah. clever guy. And there's some stories right. that I can share later on. I know we don't have time about him and his medal and where it traveled around World War II. So, uh, but what we do here with the chapter is we are the sustaining support base for fellow wounded veterans as well as the families of those who paid the ultimate sacrifice and working with Gold Star Wives, working with the wounded uh, veterans as they come through uh, the hospitals up here. Our chapter was very, very busy working with uh, Walter Reed, the old Army Walter Reed, and now since they moved over to Bethesda, we were still engaged doing monthly visits. We have a team on call so that, especially when the war was really ramped up, mm-hmm. we would have an influx that would come in of wounded veterans. They would call us, and we would have somebody there, if nothing else, just to talk to them because unlike the other great American uh, veteran organizations like the American Legion or VFW or some of those others, the commonality is that we served. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But in other organizations, the commonality is you served a particular branch mm-hmm. of service. The thing that sets us apart is it doesn't matter what uniform you had on. It's the fact that 100% of us were in combat and 100% of us were wounded. Mm-hmm. No other group can sit there and talk about that. You may have one or two, but the rest of the people were not in combat or they were not wounded. So you're sitting there and you wanting to talk to somebody kind of talk it through. And I did that myself mm-hmm. as a younger younger soldier. I just wanted to talk to somebody. Mm-hmm. And so to have that opportunity to sit down one-on-one or within a group and have that camaraderie that sets us apart from anybody else is really the mainstay of why we have MOPH today. We have a very proud chapter. We're the largest in the Commonwealth of Virginia and fifth largest in the country, which is a good thing in numbers. It's a bad thing because we're still awarding Purple Heart medals for our country. I would like to see that go to zero one of these days. Oh, boy, would I like that to end. And I just, my uh, uh, my dad's a Purple Heart uh, recipient. And so, you know, I, I just uh, love veterans. And I, and I love, uh, you know, those that are willing to sacrifice their lives for the sake of others, for other people that don't, they don't even know. And they're yeah. willing to make those kinds. And it's a brotherhood and a sisterhood that's very unique and very extraordinary, and they're extraordinary men and women. And so... And you were asking earlier about meeting people. Um, obviously, we have a lot of our members here, not a lot, but we do have members that are Medal of Honor recipients mm, wow. in our chapter, so I get a chance to see those gentlemen every now and then, and we, we talk sometimes. One of my favorite stories is uh, one of our monthly visits was Walter Reed. Senator Bob Dole was there mm, for, yeah. his, for his monthly visit. Yeah. So we, so me and another guy, we come in, uh, and there's Senator Dole with his aide. And Senator Dole looked up at me, and he looked like, he, like I know you. And, uh, and we had met on other times when I was in the Pentagon, and I did testimony uh, in front of him in, in some earlier days. So I went over to give my respects to the senator, and he asked me, what were we doing? And I told him. And we had on our Purple Heart shirts, mm-hmm. you know, with a badge and everything. So he, took to, he tells his aide, he says, I want a picture. And I was thinking, oh, this is great. I'm going to get a picture of me with the senator and all that. Well, come to find out, it wasn't the fact that we wanted a picture of him. He wanted a picture with us because he, too, is a Purple Heart recipient. Wow. <laughs> yeah, he, it was wow. something you don't see with politicians. They, no, you, know, you don't. Yeah, everybody wants their picture with him. It's not That's the not opposite. The you don't see wanted. that. Wow. That's incredible. I mean, it's just and, – and that's why I think it's uh, it's so important for us to honor those people who have uh, who, who have put themselves in harm's way like that. And, you know, we're coming up, Gordon, on the – tomorrow, on the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 um, attack on our country. And it's uh, – there's a lot of emotions. There's a lot of people that are, uh, you know, in deep in uh, – uh, consternation right now and remembrance and memorializing the fallen. Uh, so much has happened since then. Uh, so much has happened to us. 
Um, do you remember where you were when the, when the towers were first hit? I was in the Pentagon. Oh, oh my gosh, you were in the Pentagon. I was in the Pentagon that day. Um, my, uh, I lost six friends that day. Um, oh, had, wow. the, had the plane hit about 45 minutes earlier than it did, uh, you'd be talking to a ghost right now. Because uh, I was I was staying there talking to Sergeant Major Larry Strickland, who was the G1 Sergeant Major for Lieutenant General Maud there on the Army staff. Larry was retiring and was going to jump over and work on my team uh, starting the 1st of November. And he had been traveling. I'd been traveling. Um, and we were just trying to touch base because we hadn't seen each other in a while. Mm-hmm. He didn't need to be there that morning. Uh, for that meeting, but he wanted to because he was that kind of soldier. Even though his replacement was there, he still wanted to come in and support his boss until he physically walked out the door uh, in retirement. So Mondays being crappy days in the Pentagon to do anything but what is basically on your schedule, we mm-hmm. decided to meet that morning just for a few minutes to you know, have a cup of coffee, shake hands, see what's going on. Then right before our meeting time at 9 o'clock, um, the Sergeant Major told me, you know, okay, boss, I'll talk to you later. And he went into the conference room there with the general, and I went to the, to my meeting, headed out the door on the other side, headed out the uh, concourse. Mm-hmm. And as we all know, 9, whatever the time was, 9.38, 9 something, that's when the plane hit. Mm-hmm. I didn't know until Thursday when one of my close friends came and told me that he was killed. Mm-hmm. Um so, like I said, we, we, it was a horrible day, um, a day that I'll never forget. Uh, the, there, there was a bit of humor in the day, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. So uh, that evening, after I was finally able to get home, because traffic was, was, was just a giant roadblock. There was no communication. Cell phones didn't work. But I was able to get home that evening, and my daughter, Andy, now, Captain Sumner in the United States Air Force, very proud of her. Uh, shout out to the to the kid there. Air Force. Air Force right yeah, now. Air Force, <laughs> That's yeah. Right. So, yeah, I told her she looks better in blue than green, so go for it. But um, she, uh, she was a senior in high school, very athletic. And I pull up into the driveway, I get out of the car, and I'm standing there in the lawn just kind of taking a deep breath. And here she comes running out of the house, out of the, out of the garage, full steam, and smacks me just like a middle linebacker hitting a guy coming through the line. I'm laying on the ground. She's on top of him. I thought, I don't believe this. I've gone through this all day long, and I'm just about being killed in my front yard. And she's crying. I'm crying. And then suddenly she does this push-up away from me, and she says, oh, Papa, you stink. (laughs) (laughs) Because of all the smoke and dust and everything. Sweat and grime. Papa, you stink. So, yeah. I said, well, thank you for that. Wow, I had no idea, you know, I, 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 that you were there at the Pentagon. And that's um, first-hand experience of the horrors of that day and the tra- tragedy that uh, a lot of times we, uh, you know, the more distance and time we get from an, ex- from an event, we start to lose uh, touch with what actually happened, the feelings, the emotions, the, the experiences. And that's why I think it's so important for us to be able to hear the stories uh, of the people who were there so that we don't forget, so that we don't have amnesia where our minds go off and we forget the why we do what we do, why we went to Afghanistan, why we went to these places is because of what happened on that day. And to remember and reflect uh, and memorialize those stories, I think, is so critical. So critical. Mm-hmm. Um, now, we also have... Um, Gordon, the uh, the fall of Kabul that just happened, and uh, it very it much mirrored in a lot of ways uh, what happened in Saigon. Uh, unfortunately, you see the pictures, the helicopters coming off of the embassies. It's very reminiscent, and there's a lot of veteran friends of mine um, that are still angry and disgusted and grief stricken um, and feel the pain of that. There's a lot of emotions that we still have to filter through. Uh, it's going to take some time. What are your thoughts uh, about uh, what's happened in Afghanistan, and how is this going to impact our veteran community? 
you know, I've thought about that. I mean, you kind of gave me a heads up when we were talking the other day about it. And one, I remember vividly, I, I was uh, a young lieutenant um, at the end of Vietnam, and I distinctly remember when Saigon fell. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to see the same thing kind of being mirrored again in Kabul. Um, the thing that I want to instill upon the veterans, and I've talked to some, in fact, I did a uh, talk yesterday to a group and then some later this morning that you can't mix politics with mission yeah. and that they served honorably. They did what they were asked to be done. They accomplished their mission. Mm-hmm. And for that, they should be proud of their actions and those if they were in a command position or any kind of leadership position, if they were in any kind of subordinate position, they should be proud of the service that they did because they did exactly what our country asked them to do. Mm-hmm. And do not, and don't get confused with what the political system is trying to now decide because it's apples and oranges. It's two distinct, distinct things. Mm-hmm. Is it disappointing to some degree? Absolutely. But the thing that I, I told one group uh, this week, I said, you got to remember, the military of today planted a seed 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. The Afghan, uh, the Afghan nation, is not the same nation that the Taliban is walking into that they left 20 years ago. That's true. Those seeds that have been planted, where it's women's rights, mm-hmm. uh, freedom, Afghan has a constitution that they didn't have 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. There are people there that are not. I believe they're not just going to allow this to just roll over. Now, I may be wrong, um, but I really believe that the people of the Taliban leadership, they're having a rude awakening that there are some people that are willing to stand up, unlike they were 25 years ago. Mm-hmm. You've got women in the street that mm-hmm. are still there every day. Mm-hmm. And it's because of the seeds that our military heroes planted 20 years ago and beyond and, mm-hmm. and since. Those seeds are now sprouting, and you can't harvest that by just a sickle, and mm-hmm. you can't cut it off. It's going to continue to grow, and that's what I try to relay to them is that their mission accomplishments is going to have a long legacy mm-hmm. uh, in that country, and then we'll just have to wait and see if I'm right or wrong. Yeah, no, I, I think that's wonderfully put. I didn't uh, even consider that, you know, breaking out the politics and the mission. Don't confuse the two. Uh, the mission was accomplished. You know, we did that. We did plant those seeds. Uh, they are standing up. They are. There's there's pockets of that happening, and I think that's so really important for veterans to get to recognizing that, without those 20 years giving them that taste of that freedom, those opportunities, those businesses that they formed, the schools, the taste, really those things start to germinate over time, and once I believe and. Uh, once people get a taste, a sampling of what it's like to be free <laughs> as opposed to be oppressed or to be enslaved in any way, whether it's by a very oppressive regime or economically, whatever it may be, that that spirit within us, it moves forward in that direction. We cannot we can't not want to have that kind of freedom again. We, once we taste it, it's, we, we want to have it again. And I believe that I'm hoping that's what we're going to see. Yeah, I agree. So I think we should get into the mission here. I mean, we, we could have this conversation uh, at length, and I love it. But I want to talk about the mission and purpose of Veterans Moving Forward because it's an, it's an incredible organization that you are the president of, and I would love for you to be able to start talking about it with us and our audience. So what is the purpose and mission of Veterans Moving Forward? Veterans Moving Forward is a recognized 501c3 nonprofit charity and our mission is to provide service and emotional support dogs to veterans that are dealing with mental and or physical challenges at absolutely no cost to the veteran or their family so all of our canines that we provide to these great americans they they go free of charge that's amazing. <laughs> and what and what are some, I mean, uh, the free of charge and the dogs themselves, I mean, they're a, they're, they're a part, they can really help. So what are the benefits that a veteran receives uh, when they get one of your service dogs? Well, the, the thing about the veteran, we, as I mentioned, we are working with veterans to dealing with a variety of issues. Uh, when I say mental or physical, I mean, you then break that down into 
different departments as well. And I'll give you an example. Uh, Colonel Greg Gadsden, a lot of people know Greg. They see him on TV. He's a movie star. Uh, he was in Battleship with Rihanna. So uh, if you see this big uh, football player guy on two prosthetics walking down the mountainside in that movie, that's Greg. Mm -hmm. And Greg has one of our service dogs, Ace. And Ace helps him with his mobility issues. He gets out with him uh, when he wants to go kayaking. So it allows Greg to have that additional freedom of movement so that in his own way, he's moving forward with his life, being supported by his battle buddy, Ace. Uh, we have other issues where we're working with veterans who, and the majority of the ones that we're dealing with now are PTSD, mm -hmm. mental challenges, et cetera. One of, our, one of my best stories of recent uh, placement is this February, we placed our service dog, Zant, with a Vietnam guy, a guy mm -hmm. my age, um, had tried to commit suicide three times. Fortunately, he was unsuccessful three times. Yeah. And he was convinced by none other than some of our Purple Heart buddies down in the Williamsburg, um, Virginia Beach area, go see Gordon. At least go talk to him, go visit his organization, and find out what it is, and maybe they can help. And after a while, he gave up and came up to visit. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you, when he first arrived, he drove back and forth in front of the building. Finally, he parked, didn't get out of the car, finally gets out of the car, has a cane, bent over, walks in, we started talking. Mm -hmm. Nine months later, he now has Zamp, and by the way, Zamp is named after Marine legend Louis Zamperini, mm. and all of our dogs are named after veterans. Most of them uh, pay the ultimate sacrifice, so that's how we honor and, and uh, remember the sacrifice of these great Americans through a living dog that's providing service in their memory and honor. Wow. So Zamp, he, they, I mean, it was just a love fest when they, when they met. And Zamp fell in love with him and started working with him. Now, thank God, he keeps his vehicle in great condition because now when he comes to visit, and he was just here earlier this week, he comes driving up, and he literally flies into the parking lot, screeches up in front of the door, door flies open. He and Zamp come piling out of the car. It looks like Fred Flintstone. He comes walking into the uh, center, and he's standing around one day, happy to see everybody. And he'd been there quite a, quite a few minutes. And then suddenly Doc goes, uh, wait a minute, I forgot my cane. I mean, he just stopped using his cane. He didn't wow. need it. He just walked in, walked in with Zamp there. And the other thing, um, a lot of our veterans, in fact, the vast majority, unfortunately, the VA's uh, prescription drugs, they just didn't give yeah. you a pile of drugs and say, here, take this, call me in the morning, but these are going to help your mental conditions. Mm -hmm. We've actually placed dogs and had the veterans give us the drugs back. Wow. And they've gone from 17 to 20 drugs down to one or two. And of those one or two, wow. one of them might be just a sleep aid. So, so that's, that's fantastic. It. The best thing that, that I'm very proud of in our organization since we started in 2010 and founded by uh, Navy Commander Karen Jeffries and a civilian Bob Larson out of New York that were friends, they had this idea, didn't know how to put an uh, organization together, so they asked me if I could help at least get that going on the 501c3 side. Mm -hmm. But they're the founders. So one of the best things that, that I'm happy to report over the years that we've been in existence since 2010 Every veteran that we've placed a dog with is still alive. We've had no suicides. So you can't tell me that these dogs don't save lives. And the, and the best part of all of it outside of that, if there is one, mm -hmm. and this is something that I want to make sure everybody understands, we live by donations. We take no federal, state, local government dollars. We get donations from individuals, corporations, businesses, and we do apply for grants. Mm -hmm. That's our funding stream to pay for these dogs that by the time we're done with their two-year training, they're about a forty to $50,000 asset. Wow. So we can use all the support we can get. And the best part about it is a trifecta. So, Charlie, not only do our dogs support these veterans, and they help them, as we say, to move forward with their lives, but these dogs also support the family, and they also support the community. Now, how does that happen? Well, the family gets in with this dog.
I mean, how many times have you known a dog not to be part of the family as a whole, right? <laughs> a huge so, part of the family. Yeah. yeah. So they're yeah. embedded into this family. When the family goes somewhere, they go out shopping, they're at Costco, they go out to eat, the dog's with them, mm -hmm. which they should be. And then the best part of all of that is how it supports the community. And by saying that, these dogs allow this veteran and the family to get out of the darkness. They're no longer staying secluded. They're not staying inside their house or the veteran if they're alone. They're not staying in their basement. They're now getting out. They're going to work. They're getting jobs. They're going back to school. They're finishing their education. We placed a, a second dog with a veteran in March of this year. That veteran was living by himself in a home, in a basement. He got his first dog, went back to school, was the president of his student government association at the university ran for local city council he's now got his second dog because his first one is now retired so he's got a second dog and he's in his phd program at a university here in virginia oh that's a and he fantastic. and he's doing great wow. and so these people get out into a community they're back in their church their places of worship my favorite part is they're out buying things they're out buying gas they're in the grocery stores they're paying taxes because my military retirement comes from the taxes so I want them out there spending that money so I can keep getting my military retirement. So, uh, so that's why for us to see them out and see their whole demeanor change, their whole attitude, their, their view on life goes from darkness to light because of these dogs. That's amazing. And that's uh, what I love. We're about here on the council about helping people to move from the darkness to the light and <clears throat> to be able to get out of those places of personal hell and uh, isolation and alienation to one where they're living the life that they were meant to live and to be able to hear that these dogs are able to really adapt themselves to whatever the veteran is going through and to help them to transform themselves so they're actually out there and engaged in life again is really it's incredible um how how long does it take to train a dog to become a service dog is there is there a lot involved in the training and then how yeah, do you it, then how do you pair them up with the with the veteran well real simple the veteran finds us and they go to our website there's a form to fill out as soon as they hit it we get it and we start the interview process and then there's a lengthy um, process that the veteran goes through with checks just as if you were going to be a foster parent before you got a human child we mm -hmm. do basically the same thing with our dogs the uh, training itself is about two years so around the 20 to 24 month window is when we're finally pairing them up with the veteran. takes about eight months, eight to nine months of, of actually connecting them to make sure that the dog can meet the needs, the special needs. And that's what makes them service dogs mm -hmm. is that they're trained to make very, to achieve very specific tasks that that veteran needs to, to carry on. And so that's how it works. Can anybody get uh, any veteran obtain a dog from you, or is it just specifically in Virginia? No, we're nationwide. We place dogs all over. Uh, we're in the process right now of working with a veteran in Montana, for example. So, um, so if there's a veteran out there that feels that they can use it, please go to our website and fill out the form and send it, and we'll see what we do. My biggest challenge is I just don't have the big enough training space, mm -hmm. and I don't have enough dogs. Yeah. We're, 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 we're limited right now to five or six dogs at a time, and I've got 30 veterans on a training list, so I'm hoping to eventually gain enough funding, which is quite a bit, yeah. um, about a million to a million and a half, so we can obtain a new training facility that's ready to go in Harper's Ferry, West Virginia, that the owners want us to have. That way I could triple my dog output and place eight to ten dogs a year instead of two or three dogs a year. I just need to find the, the donor support. Yeah, yeah. Is there a type of breed that you work with, or is there like, uh, you know, are there certain breeds that are, I guess, certain dogs are just better at being service dogs? Well, for us, the Labrador Retriever is what really works out yeah. well. They're smart, they're strong, um, they, they're capable of learning quickly. They're just fun to be with. Uh, they love to work. When they get bored at the training center, if we're not with them, they'll go train themselves. I had one dog got bored one day and brought me 37 bottles of water out of the refrigerator. <laughs> so, <clears throat> so that's right. what they are. I mean, we have worked with other dogs, other dog types, German Shepherds, Standard Poodles, um, 
golden retrievers, et cetera. It's just over the years that's worked out better. And we have really strong relationships with a lot of the kennels that give us the pick of the litter mm-hmm. for these great animals. So it's just, just the way we operate right now. Well, I love labs. Uh, my brother has a lab, and he is one of the most smartest, brightest dogs. I mean, he does everything. He teaches He'll get you to, to throw the, 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 the Frisbee for him, and he'll come right down, and he puts it right down at your feet. And I mean, mm-hmm. he's, they're so smart and engaged, and they, he senses everything about all of us. Uh, just even though we may not see him all the time, he's very attuned to us. So I can see why you would have him as uh, that breed as, uh, as something that you would train. Now, if a civilian sees a veteran with a service dog, what is the best way for them to respond? I mean, are there things that they should or shouldn't do? Well, any, any service dog that you see, not necessarily with just a veteran, but any service dog that you see that has their vest on and they're with an individual, the best thing to do is to ignore the dog. Wow. The dog's attention is on that individual. That's what we train them. Their whole life is focused on supporting that individual. They're not pets. They don't want you to come up and give them a hug and a noogie and all that kind of stuff. Mm. Uh, There are times where they can be released by their handler or their owner, and then they're allowed to be a dog, and you can then punt them or whatever. So, for example, you're in the airport, and you see a, a person with a service dog, and it's just the cutest thing that you've ever seen. Just ignore it. Just go, wow, that's a pretty dog, and then move on. Mm. If you're pretty close and you happen to be sitting side by side and the dog's there, talk to the individual, talk to the veteran, and and comment, nice dog, beautiful. I'm so glad to see that the dog's helping you, you know, great. Uh, Tell me a little bit about the organization, any conversation like that. Then you could say, may I pet the dog? Mm -hmm. And the veteran can then say, no, he's working. Or sure, and then give the release command to the dog that that dog now knows it can be a dog, and it's okay for you to then pet the dog. Wow. It's, it's it's really that simple. The biggest thing is, don't go up and just assume that because it's a dog that you can just pet them if they're act if they're working. So there's actually like a release command, where yes. the the person has to release the dog from what their work that they're doing, uh, otherwise it disrupts their connection right is that what's going on that's correct okay well you are you mentioned some of their biggest challenges that you're looking at what are some of your biggest challenges that you're facing and um you know what can our listeners do to help fundraising obviously i mean we're just no different than any other nonprofit, especially still coming through covid we're very happy to say that when covid hit we didn't shut down mm-hmm. our motto at veterans moving forward became we don't have time for covid so we kept training. We did it smartly. We, entered, we introduced protocols in the training center. We uh, separated the training into other modules in different locations. Uh, we wouldn't allow two trainers or a trainer and assistant to be together at the same time. So we instituted protocols, but we never stopped training because we never stopped providing that support for the veterans who need it. Mm-hmm. Those veterans didn't have time for COVID. They need support. That's right. So even during COVID That's now, right. we've placed three soon-to-be four dogs here uh, coming up in about another month, possibly a fifth dog coming up in about three months. So um, so that's, that's where we are. The biggest challenge outside of the fundraising is getting people to know about us. Mm-hmm. So if your listeners can look us up, share our information, go to our Facebook page, like us, share our information, uh, hold a fundraiser at, in your communities. If you need some help, some brochures or something, let us know. We'll mail them to you. Mm-hmm. But uh, anything that we can do, to, as you and I were talking before we went on the air, our my mission is to convert everybody in the country to become true believers. <laughs> That's right. Moving forward. <laughs> right. And so... I want everybody, all of your listeners, all 120,000 plus, by the end of this show, to become true believers. Raise their right hand and say that I believe in what Veterans Moving Forward is doing. It's great for our veterans. It's great for their families. It's great for their communities. It's great for our country. Mm-hmm. And because of that, do it. Become a monthly sustaining donor. It's nice to know that we've got a lot of money coming in every month. It makes planning a lot easier mm-hmm. uh, for what we want to do. So. Uh, anything like that. If people have questions, they can go to our website and find us and email us. 
Um, when you do make a donation, you get a personally signed dog card by me every every time, which I know is that is exactly why you want to make a donation, so you can have a signed card. But they are cute doggy cards. So, uh, <laughs> well, i got to tell you, I'm a true believer. I'm already, you know, and I've seen you know, some of my uh, veteran friends and colleagues, some of the service dogs that, that they have, and how wonderful, how, how it just transforms them. And I know how beneficial they, they are to those who are in need. And so I'm definitely a true believer. And I want every, all my listeners, our, our listeners here on the council, to be uh, true believers as well. I would love for you to be able to share, you know, you talked about the challenges, but you've been around since 20, 2010, right? Uh, about 2010. What have some of the, what been some of the greatest triumphs at veteran, uh, veterans moving forward that you've had over the years? Oh, every time we place a dog. I mean, it's, it's, we do what we call a bone voyage party. So it's not where you come in and you get a dog and we go, hey, great, congratulations, here's your dog, write us, you know, see you later and out the door you go. No, you're connected with us for the next three years by contract because we want to make sure that the dog's being taken care of, that you're being taken care of, there's something you need. Let us know. We set you up with vets in the area that you're going to live so you can get we can get discounted services, make sure the dog needs any training equipment that we can get back out to you so you don't buy it as a veteran. If you need some assistance in the dog food, we do that. So we do all of those things. Mm-hmm. So for us, the personal triumph is seeing this battle buddy team go out the door that they're going to now live the rest of their lives together. Right. And that you can't put a... You cannot put a price. And, I, and one of the videos that you sent me that uh, kind of highlights uh, the work in a really beautiful way. When you see the vet coming in and he opens the door and the dog is there on, I think you had him on a trampoline. I think you had him on a trampoline or oh, something. And he just like turned over and rolled over and <laughs> just wanted to be fed. Oh, it was just, if you love dogs, it was heartwarming and, and beautiful. So, um, yeah. Go ahead. It is. It is. It is good. And like I said, we do the the people who help raise the dog, the puppy raisers. They all come, and uh, we have a chaplain that'll come and bless the new battle buddy team. And then uh, my favorite part is at the end of it, we have food. So uh, so it's <laughs> get so to it's eat just, a little. <laughs> so we get a chance to eat a little. Bit, but it's it's just that's the rewarding is to see that. And I can tell you, there's not a dry eye in the uh, in the building when we do these farewells yeah. and see the see them walk out together. Is that why you do this work, uh, Gordon? I mean, I'm sure there's a whole lot of other things that you could be doing and uh, spending your time and energy on. I mean, is this what motivates you to get up in the morning and to be in service in this way? It's fun. Mm-hmm. It's it's just fun. It's rewarding. And the joke around my house, especially with my bride of 45 years, uh, I heard her tell a, a, a wife the other day that, oh, Gordon's never going to quit work. And the joke in the family is that I will be late for my funeral because I'll be at a meeting. <laughs> so so I just, I've, I've been service-oriented my whole yeah. life. I was a Boy Scout. Uh, I used to pick up the elderly and drive them to church on Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. Um, got into the military because of that. Continued to serve in the federal government. Now I serve with my various military organizations, veteran service organizations. This came about, uh, I helped, as I mentioned, get it started. Then I left where I became the Purple Heart Commander. And the board asked me to come back full-time, not as a volunteer, but full-time in September or October of 2019. Mm-hmm. It literally took me about 10 minutes to say yes. Uh, plus, the wife was very encouraging, saying, yes, you need to get out of the house. And uh, <laughs> you know, so this would be great. Go back to your dogs. Yeah. And, uh, and like I said, I, I hate to tell people, Charlie, that I got a job because I'm surrounded by dogs all day. <laughs> so it's kind of like good. my little secret. <laughs> yeah, like, you know? I'm going to work. I'm really going to work. I promise. Yeah, I'm really I am, going yeah. to work. <laughs> yeah. so, well, I, I, just, I mean, I guess that goes into my next question here. Is that what you love most about what you do? What do you love most about the work that you do now? Helping veterans. Yeah. You know, I, I tell people just because um, I hung up my uniform doesn't mean that I stopped caring about our military and their families. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a total different mindset, but I'm, I was never one of those that said, okay, my retirement ceremony is over, the uniform gets hung in the closet, and then that's it, and I'm going to go do something else. That's why if you look at my track record even after retirement from the military 
every job I've had has got something directly related in supporting our military, our veterans, and their families. Mm-hmm. And I will continue to do that until I just can't physically do it anymore. Well, I think that's, that's something. A promise. I think that's amazing, you know. And I, and, and I, for people like you and I who are service or I put my uniform up a long time ago, but I never stopped loving veterans. I never stopped loving the. Uh, the service orientedness, the the selflessness that they have, they carry the integrity, the honesty, the dedication. You know, like some of those images that came across uh, from the the airport in uh, Afghanistan. You saw those Marines holding on to those children. You know, those mm-hmm. babies that were handed to them and giving them giving them water, them food, relaxing, organizing. You saw the the. the the largeness of their souls, how they were willing to do that. And I think that, you know, I, it's such a special thing about it. And so, like you, it's just wanting to help them and reach out to them and let them know that there are people out there like you who are, are making a difference and helping to save lives because they're willing to risk their lives for all of us. Well, I tell you, we have a great team. Uh, our COO, Lori Sidner, and our Director of Programs and Head Trainer, Katie Paulson, I could not ask for two better people to be a part of this organization. And above that, too, we have about 40 to 50 volunteers who help in every facet of the organization, be it office management, donor management, puppy raising, dog walking. We have, in the, we have teenagers who come in and help us so that they can get their community hours for their school projects. And they have to get about 60 hours a semester, or a year, rather. And they use us to come do that. And to have these people come. We have people who show up in the morning to make sure the dogs are taken care of before we get started with training. They take them out for walks. We have people that'll take time during their lunch and they'll come after work just to walk the dogs. <laughs> so um, great. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> just, it's just great. I mean, I could not ask for anybody better than the two that we've got on the team that stayed with me mm-hmm. when I came in and didn't leave. They stayed, we, we formed a family. We're not the BMF team, we're the BMF family. Oh, that's and beautiful. that's how everybody's treated. That's beautiful. Um, Gordon, we're right coming up to the, the top of the hour. Is there any events that you have coming up? Uh, and, and how can concerned citizens just get involved and, and support your work over there at Veterans Moving Forward? We have some fundraising events. Best thing to do is go to the website. On the far right on the scroll across the top, there's a calendar of events. Click on it. You can see some of the events that are coming up golf tournaments, uh, wineries, et cetera, for this year. So please come on out, uh, support us uh, with that. And then um, what was the other question? Oh, concerned citizens, how, how, can, you, uh, how, how can you help us? Mm-hmm. Again, if, especially those that are in the Northern Virginia area, you belong to different organizations. Those organizations are looking for programs. Help that program director out by saying, I know somebody who loves to talk. He's a politician, and there's not a microphone that he hasn't fallen in love with. So have them reach out, contact me. I will come speak to the unit. If we've got an opportunity, we can bring one of our service dogs in training. We'll do that, too, because the people want to see the dog. They don't want to see this dog face. So that's how we can do it. So help me get the word out. And then last but not least, go to the website, become a true believer, make those monthly donations, help us help our veterans. You're the driving force. You can make it happen, and then at the end of the day, the veteran, their families, and their communities will be better off for what you do today. Amen to that. And, yes, the vet, the uh, website is uh, Vets Forward, F-W-D. Uh, let me do it again. Vets, V-E-T-S-F-W-D dot O-R-G. That's Vets, F-W-D dot O-R-G. I uh, just want to do a quick shout-out to KUHS, Radio TV Denver. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Uh, Henry, for all of your help in the back there, and everybody who makes all of this seamless and happening. And, you know, there's a magic happening in the background that uh, we couldn't do this show without. So thank you, uh, Henry, and everybody here at KUHS for making this possible. And thank you for watching and listening and tuning in to the council. Uh, it is an honor, like I said, to be your host, and we are – being listened to by so many people from all around the globe. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, Gordon, this has been fantastic. It's really been a pleasure talking with you. Uh, before I close, I always ask my guests one question, and I, I want to give that to you. If, uh, if you could give one piece of advice 
one bit of wisdom from your life experience, what would it be? As a young person, don't get locked into thinking that's what you're going to do the rest of your life. Take opportunities when they come. When the door opens, walk through it. When the window opens because the door is closed, crawl through it. And don't just think that this is what you're going to do. And have fun. I tell people now, one of these days I'll figure out what I'm going to be when I grow up. But until then, I'm loving life. <laughs> that's great. I love it. I love it. I'm, you know, that that's so true. I think that's good advice for all of us. Never quit. They're just... Crawl through, go to those opportunities, see it. If it doesn't open, keep going, because uh, you just don't know. I never knew I was going to be doing uh, this show, you know, even a few years know. ago. So, well, I hope to come back. I hope to have you back on, Gordon. This has been fantastic. I just I had a great time. Thank you, really. Gentlemen. So, thank you, sir. Really honored to have you on, folks. Thank you for tuning into the council. The council is adjourned. May you all be well. May you all be free of pain and suffering. May you all be whole. God bless. We're going to see you back here in another week. Take care. We are Wild and Precious Optimal Living, neurologically